here we go again. And if that's what you're thinking after hearing 1 Samuel 19 being read, I don't blame you. Chapter 19 this morning is a continuation from chapter 18. In fact, to be precise, it continues from chapter 18, verse 6. And there we read, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousand, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. You see, from this point onwards, the Bible, the Bible tells us that Saul started to eye David. He started to be suspicious of him, jealous of his success. And the following day, when a harmful spirit came upon Saul, he tried to kill David by hurling his spear at him, not once, but twice. But David eluded him. And this episode begins a long series of Saul's attempts at David's life. And it won't end until Saul himself dies at the last chapter of 1 Samuel. Saul was evidently afraid of David. Why? Because it was clear to him that the Lord was with David. We see that in chapter 18, verse 12. And the more successful David was, the more the people loved him, the more Saul was fearful of him. And in chapter 18, Saul would attempt to kill David again, but this time round by asking David for a hundred foreskin of the Philistines as the bright prize for his daughter in the hope that the Philistines might finish off David for him. But no such luck. David got 200 foreskins instead. And by the end of chapter 18, we see a Saul who has become even more afraid of David. Which brings us to chapter 19. And here in this chapter, we will read of four more attempts on David's life by Saul. And each time, David would elude, elude him. I was watching Mission Impossible with my son Tim recently. And you know the main character in the movie is the agent Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. It doesn't matter what you throw at him, right? You just can't kill the guy. <laughs> and it feels this way in this chapter. <laughs> right? David just survives one attempt after another at his life. And it's really a Mission Impossible for Saul. And in a way, it shouldn't surprise us. If we were one of the people in the story, this would look like a contest between a king and his best army commander. <clears throat> but we're not one of the participants in the story. We have the benefit of a narrator telling us what's going on. And we know this is really a contest between the king of the universe and the puny human king of a little strip of land called Israel. And because we know that, we can almost expect that the contest will be one-sided. But Saul probably doesn't, or at least he doesn't want to believe that's the case. And he wasn't planning to stop trying to kill David. And in chapter 19, his first attempt at David's life starts at the very first verse. In verse 1, he calls out to all his servants and his son Jonathan. And their mission, if they choose to accept it, was to kill David. I don't think they had much of a choice. But, but verse 2 tells us that Jonathan delighted much in David. 
In fact, it was more than just delighted because we see in the previous chapter, chapter 18, verse 1, and we are told there that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And so Jonathan told David what his father said and asked him to hide himself. And the next day, Jonathan spoke to his father, gave him three reasons to change his mind. First, he argued that David was innocent. He had not sinned against Saul. Second, Jonathan said that what David did actually benefited Saul and all Israel. You see, David had defeated Goliath and the Philistines, and Saul had sinned in himself and was glad. It has brought salvation to Israel. And third, Jonathan said that if his father killed David, he would sin against David and be guilty of shedding innocent blood. Now that language is loaded because in Deuteronomy, the shedding of innocent blood demands retributive action. At the very least, atonement was needed. Well, Jonathan's eloquence managed to persuade his father, Saul, and Saul swore an oath not to kill David. And so both Saul and David were reconciled. But not for long. War with the Philistines broke out again. And as before, David went out and struck them with a great blow. Another great victory for David. And you know what it means for Saul, don't you? He gets more jealous. And he was at his home listening to David playing the lyre. And we are told he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Now that's a sure sign of problem, right? <laughs> As one commentator remarked, only a deeply troubled individual would sit armed for war inside the safest house in Israel. Anyway, the harmful spirit came upon Saul, and the next thing we know, he's hurling his spear at David again. But it missed David, and David eluded him again, and he fled home. Well, let me at this point perhaps make a slight digression. I know what some of us here might be thinking. How is it that God could send a harmful spirit to come upon Saul? That doesn't sound right, does it? Would a good God do that? Well, all I'll say is this, that we need to always remember that our God is sovereign over everything. He can even use evil agents to accomplish His purposes. We see that happening in Israel's history where He sent the evil uh, Babylonians to punish the Israelites and send them into exile. Um, you read all of that in the book of Habakkuk. God also used evil men to get Jesus crucified. You see, God doesn't do evil, but in fulfilling His purposes, He does use evil agents. And if you want a better and longer answer, please speak to Keith after the service. <laughs> okay, end of digression, back to Saul. Knowing David went home, Saul sent men to do a stakeout at David's house. And the order was simple. Kill David in the morning. Take him out when it's light. Otherwise, David will probably put up a struggle and it's possible that Michal, Saul's daughter, may be hurt in the confusion <coughs> of the darkness. But again, this attempt was thwarted. We don't know how Michal knew about the plot. Saul might have told her about it in the hope that she would help him. And if he did, he would have seriously misjudged her, just as he misjudged Jonathan, his son. Michal finds out 
and the next thing you know, he's telling, she's telling her husband, David, to get out of the house through the window, which he does. You see, he always pays to obey a wife. <laughs> Saul then sent messengers to take on David, but Michal had already taken an image, possibly an idol, dressed it up with some goat hair on its head, so it looked like David was lying in a bed covered by his blanket. Well, we don't know why Michal would have had an idol in her house to begin with, and I don't intend to spend time on that, but it worked to trick Saul's messengers. <coughs> Well, Michal told them David was sick, and they went back to Saul with the message. Well, I guess out of professional courtesy, they didn't kill him. You don't hit a man when he's down. But you know what? Saul wouldn't have any of that. He wanted David dead or alive, preferably the former. And so he ordered his messenger to get David, even if a man carrying him on his bed to Saul. Talk about ruthlessness. But by then, Michal had bought some time for David. And David's gone, out through the window, into the darkness. And when the man went to David's house, as someone cheekily put it, Saul's men did not find in the bed someone who was about to die, but one who had never lived. That's the idol, right? Well, I guess that's one good use for idols. In any case, the third attempt failed. And then Michal is left uh, to lie about her involvement in his escape to her father. Well, she probably didn't think that she had the eloquence of her brother Jonathan to convince her father. Yes, I know some of you will be thinking, was it right for Mikkel to be lying to her father to let David escape? Let me just say this very quickly. Nowhere in this narrative are we told that lying is okay. The narrator is just telling us what happened. And so we want to be careful about reading too much beyond that. And I'll just leave it at that for the moment. David then made his way to Ramah to see Samuel. Ramah is just about three miles away, wasn't very far. And this would be the final break because David will never again return to Saul's court. For the rest of Saul's life, David will be on a run from him. And David tells Samuel all that Saul had done. And together they packed their bags and went to Naoth, which is probably not a name of a place, but rather a reference to camps or, or remote dwelling places for shepherds. But, you know, Saul has his spies everywhere, and before long, someone tells him that David and Samuel were at Neoth. And so Saul sent his messengers again to Neoth to take David. The first detachment of messengers came, arrived, saw Samuel's prophets prophesying, and the Spirit of God came upon them, and they too started to prophesy. And when Saul found that out, he sent another detachment. And the second detachment came and again ended up prophesying. And then a third detachment was sent and the same thing happened. They ended up prophesying again. And, and Saul must be thinking at this stage, you know, you just can't get your people to do anything right. You get them to surround Michal's home and they get fooled by Michal. You send them to Naoth and they end up prophesying. Sometimes you just have to do things yourself, right? And so what does he do? Robbed his sleeve, went over to Neoth, and no price for guessing. On his way to Neoth, the Spirit of God came upon him, and Saul too started to prophesy. Now until he arrived at Neoth, and then it got worse, because there we are told, Saul stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel. 
and he lay naked all day and night. Well, as you can well imagine, lying naked in public, even out here, is bad. Back in those days, in the ancient Near East, it was a great shame. Israel's king was humiliating himself before God and his people. In fact, comically humiliated before the power of God. And in one sense, Saul here is doing unwillingly what his son Jonathan did gladly when faced with David. Last week, we were told that Jonathan gladly stripped himself of the royal robe that was on him and gave it to David. An act that Keith explained symbolically transferred Jonathan's royal rights to David. And this week we see Saul stripping his robe as well, but unwillingly and in shame. Both incidents testify that the marks of royal office were no longer belong to the house of Saul. And so this chapter ends with Saul stripped of his royal robes, losing his kingship symbolically. And the next time his robes will be stripped from him will be by the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel. And when that happens, he loses not only his kingship, but also his life. And so the last question of chapter 19, right at the end, the question is, Saul also among the prophets suggests that the powerful king had been brought into submission to Samuel. And we saw this same question, very same question in chapter 10 of uh, verse 11, didn't we? Back in chapter 10, it implied a positive evaluation of Saul. Not here, not in chapter 19. Nothing positive will be taken from this episode, from this question. It's all negative. It's a sarcastic and cynical question. And so ends the fourth attempt at David's life. And with that, we, came, we come to the end of chapter 19. Now, I want all of us here right now to take a pause and ask ourselves, why is this happening? Why is chapter 19 even here? What's the significance of this? We should recognize by now that the key to understanding the book of 1 Samuel is not about whether Israel will have a king. Now, that might not have been clear right from the start because a series of prophets like Samuel could conceivably have continued to lead Israel and a king might not have been necessary. But by chapter 19, by now, that's sorted out. Israel will have a king. In fact, Israel has a king. It's King Saul. As such, the key to understanding 1 Samuel at this juncture is to ask, what kind of a king will Israel have? Will Israel's king be someone who's both faithful to Yahweh and display Yahweh's character? Uh, since Israel's king is to be the earthly representative of Yahweh's own kingship over Israel? Or will it be a king like all other kings in the region? From what we've seen of Saul so far in this chapter, he's certainly not the type of king that God had in mind. He falls very short of being a faithful earthly representative of Yahweh's own kingship over Israel. What about David then? Is he going to be Yahweh's faithful earthly representative? 
Well, the reality is that we actually don't see much of David in this chapter. Yes, he has some helpful friends. He had Jonathan, Michal, and Samuel. We know he's a good military leader. He won a battle against the Philistines. But in this chapter, he's actually quite passive. It's the others who have taken the initiative. It's Jonathan who speaks up for him before Saul. It's Michal who tells him what to do. Basically, get out of the house quickly. It's Samuel who meets Saul at Naoth. You see, David is pretty much in the background. You sort of wonder, what's going on in David's mind when these four attempts at his life was happening? Three possibilities. One, would he have been bitter about the whole thing? After all, why all this suffering, even though he's done nothing wrong? Secondly, perhaps David could have felt a sense of inevitability about suffering. A sort of a stiff upper lip attitude. Because suffering is inevitable, so better keep a firm grip on your emotions and your thoughts. Just try and suck it up and deal with suffering as it comes. So that's the second possibility. I don't think so. I, I think it's neither of the first two. And fortunately, we can know because we actually have a psalm recorded for us that tells us how David felt during this period. If you can turn with me to Psalm 59, you can find it on page 529 of the Large Print Bibles, 529 or 273, 273 of the Small Print Bibles. 529, a large print, and 273, small print. Psalm 59. And you see right at the top of the psalm, we're told that this is a psalm, a miktam of David. Miktam is probably a, a musical or liturgical term. When Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Which is our passage today in, in chapter 19. Now, I don't have the time to take you through the whole psalm. But what I'd just like to do is to highlight parts of the psalm, which will give you a hint as to what's going on in David's heart and mind as the events of chapter 19 unfolded. And in verses 1 to 4, we read, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me, for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. You see, what's David doing here? David lays out his problem, which basically Saul and his messengers, they lie in wait for his life, they stir up strife against him. And then David lays out the ground, his grounds for asking God to help. You see, he's committed no transgression or sin, it's totally of no fault of his. And David is outraged at what's wrong. These people are coming for him even though he's done nothing wrong. Now this tells us David is a person who has faith in his God to deliver. He has faith that his God is a just God. And he trusts that his God will keep his word to protect him and to save him from all evil. And in fact, his trust is so confident and so strong that he's even able to write triumphantly in verses 8 to 10 of Psalm 59. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. 
O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Can you hear that confidence in his voice? And as we go down the psalm, we find that the only reason why David prays that God will not kill his enemies is so that the people will not forget. Look with me at verses 11 to 13. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them total by your power and bring them down, O Lord, my shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them until they are no more. Now, why all this talk about bringing his enemies down? Why trap them in their pride? Why consume them in wrath till they are no more? Why is David praying all these things? So that he may have revenge on them? No. Look with me at verse 13, the second part of verse 13. So that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. So that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. You see, above all things, God, uh, David wants the name of God to be acknowledged. And his reason for his enemies to be punished is so that everyone will know that his God rules over Jacob which is Israel. He wants the whole world to know that God's in charge. His God is in charge. And David wants everyone to know that his God is the real king. And wasn't that exactly what he told Goliath when he fought him in 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 and 46? And let me read it for you. You don't have to turn there. And then David said to the Philistine, that is Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all his disassembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David is jealous for God's glory and when you feel that way about God when you're that confident of his sovereign rule over everything, your perspective of life changes totally. Like David, it doesn't matter whether you have to escape from the window of your house to avoid being killed. It doesn't matter whether you're facing the wrath of a king who will stop at nothing to make sure you're dead. It doesn't even matter if you're facing Goliath who's twice the size. Your odds may be overwhelming but you can still confidently say, as David did in the last two verses of Psalm 59, verse 16, But I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, 
For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. I think Psalm 59 gives us a pretty good indication of where David's heart is. This is a man who sees everything through the lens of what it would mean from God's point of view. A man who's passionate about God's name and God's glory. A man who has complete faith in God. I said earlier that the key to understanding 1 Samuel at this stage is to ask what kind of a king Israel will have. Will Israel's king be someone who is both faithful to Yahweh and display Yahweh's character? I think it's clear from this episode in David's life that he fits the bill. Finally, what does that all mean for us? In the ancient Near East, the king did not only represent the gods to his people. At the same time, he's also the embodiment of his people to their gods. And that is to say the king is the one who gives the concrete form of what it means to be the people of their gods. He exemplifies what that should look like. So in a sense, he stood in for his people as the representative to their gods as well. And that's why you see books like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, they tell the story of Israel almost exclusively as the story of their kings. Because the story of the king is the story of his people. And so David, who will become a king subsequently, will be the embodiment of God's people. He will exemplify for his people and for us what it means to be the people of God. And so we should imitate those qualities that best embody what it means to be God's people. Qualities that we learn today from 1 Samuel 19 and Psalm 59. Qualities that should characterize the people of God. Qualities like faith in God, trust in His sovereignty over everything and every event, confident that God's will cannot be thwarted by opposition, jealous for His honor and His glory, and so on. And so as we begin this week, how will we, by God's grace, seek to be faithful to Yahweh and to exhibit these qualities in our lives? And of course, the truly anointed one, who is the perfect representation of God to his people, is Jesus. Because he's the true Son of God. And Jesus, as David's descendant, his greater son, is also the true embodiment of Israel, God's people. Jesus gives concrete form and exemplifies fully and perfectly what it means to be God's people. And so it should come as no surprise to us when the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus is the ultimate person that we should all be imitating. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.